Today we begin our Advent sermon series, How Does a Weary World Rejoice? And we will be answering that question over the next few weeks, but today I want to give sort of a broad overview to the topic. Beginning with our scripture today, which oddly enough kind of reminds me of those old commercials for Bush's baked beans. Remember the ones where the narrator says that the only other person who knows the secret recipe is his dog, a golden retriever named Duke, and he isn't talking? At which point the dog says, roll that beautiful bean footage, spilling the proprietary corporate beans. Well, yeah, this text this morning is a little bit like that. I mean, not really, but a little bit. (laughs) There's an untold secret here, and there's only one man who can spill the beans. The secret involves the conception of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who would later proclaim the coming of a new world and the Savior who ushers it in. For now, though, all of that is unknown, still yet to come. The future is yet to be born. The only one who can see it is John's father, Zechariah, and he isn't talking. So let's roll that beautiful footage. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as a priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at that time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I know this will happen? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. But now, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he was unable to speak to them, 
and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and whose birth we await in this holy season. Amen. You couldn't stand it for another minute, could you? That meeting at work that went on and on and on. The hike in the woods that never seems to end. The spin class that left you feeling like you were going to throw up. The time that your husband forced you to watch all three extended edition DVDs of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> Clocking in at 11 hours and 36 minutes. Not that I would ever do such a thing to my wife. I mean, technically, Angela and I weren't married yet. Regardless of the particulars, I'm sure that you can all remember a time when you were completely exhausted and you just couldn't go on. For my part, nothing wore me out more than the birth of my firstborn and eldest son, Ethan. I'm not talking about the birth itself. That was pretty easy from where I was standing. <laughs> I suppose you'd have to ask Angela about that. No, not the birth itself, but rather the first few weeks that followed after we carried him across the threshold of our home for the first time. See, Ethan's always been uh, a pretty amazing kid, smart, creative, kind, relatively easygoing. But as an infant, you could not put him down for even a second. If someone wasn't holding him at all times, he would burst into tears. He would only fall asleep and stay asleep in our arms. And the proverbial wisdom at that time, which probably hasn't changed, was that you're not supposed to fall asleep while cradling an infant, lest you roll on top of him and smother him. This meant that someone, either Angela or I, had to be awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for several weeks. It should get better in a couple of months, people told us. In a couple of months <laughs> felt like an eternity. Out of curiosity, I went back and looked at a sermon that I had written around that time, about 12 years ago, and I found this passage. St. Paul writes that suffering produces endurance, and I can now testify to this personally. <laughs> Having spent many long nights tending to the needs of a restless child who refuses to sleep in his crib, staring at late-night infomercials through bleary eyes, my wife and I have suffered from varying degrees of sleep deprivation for weeks. In those days, I learned to appreciate whatever rest I could get, an hour, 33 minutes, whatever. But the fatigue made it difficult to appreciate the marvel that I held in my hands, much less rejoice at his coming. Still, I knew that his birth would change everything. In the words of novelist Cormac McCarthy, he knew only that the child was his warrant. He said, if he is not the word of God, then God never spoke. Acknowledging our personal weariness isn't hard. 
you're tired, right? You're tired from the stress of, of keeping up with life. You're tired from your personal struggles with sickness or grief. You're tired. You have every right to be. Acknowledging that we live in a weary world where nearly everyone is laboring beneath more weight than they can carry these days is a little harder. I think most of us can feel it, but no one wants to really talk about it. I often think of John Coffey, that gentle giant and innocent man put on death row in that movie, The Green Mile, a man of tremendous empathy who said to Tom Hanks, I'm tired, boss. Tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. Tired of not ever having me a buddy to be with or tell me where we's coming from or going to or why. Mostly, I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and hear in the world every day. It's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. And you understand? Can you? I think I can. The so-called polycrisis of the 21st century is wearing us all down. Some call it the everything crisis, others the long emergency, but whatever you want to call it, there's this growing sense of dread, this feeling that things aren't going in the right direction. They're going to get worse before they get better. The average global temperature ticks upward as we cross various planetary thresholds, six out of nine, to be precise. While the world's largest climate summit, meeting this week in Dubai, is led by the CEO of the largest oil conglomerate in the Middle East, who has already announced his plans to use the conference to broker more drilling contracts. The average American family is struggling harder than we have in a long time, trying to make ends meet while everything keeps getting more expensive. The horrors of endless war in Ukraine and Gaza are splashed on our screens 24 hours a day, alongside ads for Seluxa and Zoloft, as if we're crazy for feeling anxious. American politics feel like a time bomb, ticking away the minutes towards the next presidential election. I could go on and at some length too, but I know you're hoping that I won't. So I'm going to stop there and leave it at that. But it's exhausting, though isn't it? Wearisome. But having said all that, it's important to recognize that Jesus was born into a weary world too. At the dawn of the first century, Israel and Palestine were occupied by the Roman Empire. And Rome, for all of its political and technological sophistication, had already begun its long slide into collapse. I'm no scholar of classical history, but some would argue that Rome's decline began when it ceased to be a republic. The first emperor, Augustus, was crowned only 27 years before Jesus was born, in the wake of various civil wars and his uncle Julius Caesar's attempt to stage a coup. As many Americans uh, sometimes worry about our own country, Augustus turned Rome into an autocratic state a dictatorship, an ambition that would be its downfall as it struggled to maintain authority and infrastructure across such a vast, complex network of states. The Roman Empire that Jesus was born into was deeply corrupt, economically divided, constantly at war, 
and already beginning to fray at the edges. Well, it wouldn't collapse for another 500 years. In the little corner of the world that Jesus inhabited at the edge of the empire was a poverty-stricken police state ruled by greedy and unscrupulous politicians like King Herod and Pontius Pilate who brutally suppressed even the slightest hint of dissent. A weary world, indeed. And how does a weary world rejoice? That phrase, a weary world rejoices, is one of the lyrics of O Holy Night, that much beloved Christmas carol that's notoriously difficult to sing. And that song has a fascinating history that answers that very question, how does a weary world rejoice? You see, before it was a song, O Holy Night was actually a poem composed in southern France in the advent of 1843 on the occasion of a newly renovated organ. The parish priest had commissioned Placide Capot, a local poet, to write it. Now, Capot was an unlikely author for what would eventually become such a sacred song. He was the owner of a liquor store that had blown one of his hands off in a shooting accident. And moreover, he was an avowed atheist. And given his distance from the church, Capot was able to compose something a bit more radical than the song we know today. In the original version, he critiques the French aristocracy. The king of kings was born in a humble manger. O mighty ones of today, proud of your greatness, it is to your pride that God preaches. And in the third verse, he promotes the abolition of slavery. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there was only a slave. Love unites those whom iron had chained. The poem was adapted to music a few years later by the French composer Adolphe A. Adam and quickly became a popular tune in alehouses and coffee shops. In fact, it became something of an anthem of the 1848 French Revolution. It was deemed so radical that the Catholic Church tried to distance itself from it. In 1864, the Revue de Musique Sacrée, I never studied French, sorry, but uh, I think it means the Review of Sacred Music, <laughs> a well-regarded journal on liturgical music, complained, it might be a good thing to discard this piece whose popularity is becoming unhealthy. It is sung in the streets, social gatherings, and at bars with live entertainment. It becomes debased and degenerated. The best would be to let it go its own way, far from houses of religion, which can do very well without it. And yet, in spite of these complaints from the religious establishment, Capot's words describe the kingdom of God much as Jesus did. An equitable world, free of tyranny, where everyone has enough to survive. The fact that these words were written by an atheist wine merchant seems in keeping with God's penchant for calling upon unlikely men and women to preach, present company included. I'm hardly a holy man or a great man by any standard to quote Douglas Adams as I'm wont to do just this guy, you know. Maybe that's why God chose to incarnate as the son of a carpenter in a backwater town at the edge of an empire destined for collapse. 
This revolutionary song that calls for equity and freedom from oppression teaches us how a weary world rejoices. We rejoice because we believe in a new world that rises from the ashes of the old, a new birth literally embodied in the birth of Jesus Christ. But in order to get from here to there, we have to face the change that we fear. Childbirth is a powerful metaphor for change, being a painful process that yields new life. And it's no coincidence that Advent begins and ends with these two miraculous births. Jesus was not the only one born in those days, after all. Our scripture today is about the conception of his cousin, John the Baptist, who was something of a miracle baby himself, a sign that God was still there, still shaping the human story, birthing something new. Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless and getting on in years. Zechariah himself is a little more than a cog in the machinery of Rome's occupation, a relatively low-ranking priest in a system that's been thoroughly captured by Roman influence. His bosses in the Sanhedrin, the local ruling religious body in Jerusalem, are in Rome's pocket, shills for the empire. So Zechariah mostly just keeps his head down and does what he's told. And upon performing his priestly duties in the Holy of Holies, the temple's inner sanctum, where only priests were allowed to go, he has this vision of an angel telling him that his wife, uh, he and his wife, are going to conceive a child named John. And naturally, Zechariah is skeptical, and the angel punishes him for his disbelief by rendering him mute until the child is born. Now, here's the important thing about this story. Zechariah knows that something wonderful is going to happen. But he can't tell anyone. The rest of the world, his wife, his friends, his fellow priests, carry on their lives of quiet desperation. They carry on without hope, barely managing to put one foot in front of the other, unable to rejoice in this weary world. But like Zechariah, we know something that they don't. We know that John will be born. We know that Jesus will be born. And as people of faith, we believe that a new world that Jesus talked about might yet be born too. Even in his most apocalyptic teachings, Jesus compares the upheaval of the world order to birth pangs, reminding us that change is painful, but that it ultimately yields salvation. All of those sleepless nights after Ethan was born were hard, but of course entirely worthwhile. He ushered in a new era in our lives, one filled with wonder and joy. And a couple of years later, we were eager for another child. Angela and I decided to make a go of it, grow our little family, sometime in the spring of 2013. These things don't always go according to plan. For months, we had no luck. As desperate couples do, we began working with a fertility doctor, subjecting ourselves to a wide battery of tests and exploring technologies that might improve our odds of success. We tried absolutely everything that we could, but some of these techniques, like IVF, weren't covered by our insurance and cost tens of thousands of dollars, well beyond anything we could afford. 
Angela often lamented in those days, mournfully, that celebrities and folks with more money could access these services while we were out of luck. As the months crept by, despair crept in. It was painful. This carried on for two years until we finally just gave up. We stopped believing. We came to terms with the fact it just wasn't in the cards. It wasn't going to happen. A couple months later, having abandoned all of the vitamins and medicines and treatments more out of habit than anything else, she took a pregnancy test, and the fertility doctor could not believe the results. And in the summer of 2015, amidst a terrible upheaval in our church, as you may recall, we welcomed Levi into the world. And like his older brother, we carried him across the threshold of our home, beginning a new chapter of our lives. The spiritual writer John O'Donohue writes of such things. A threshold is not simply an accidental line that happens to separate one region from another, he writes. Crossing can often mean the total loss of all you enjoyed while on the other side. It becomes a dividing line between the past and the future. O'Donohue points out that the word threshold finds its origins in threshing, the act of separating the wheat from the chaff. Much like birth, that can be a hard process. To cross a threshold, he writes, is to leave behind the husks and arrive at the grain. Friends, we are all standing at the future's threshold. And while we may well inhabit a weary world, we look towards the birth of a new one in time. Like every birth, it's going to hurt. But like Zechariah, gesticulating wildly but unable to speak, God sees things that we can scarcely begin to imagine. I know that this weary world is hard to endure, that change is coming. And maybe if we could see what God sees beyond the horizon, we would rejoice. Amen.